Daniel 7, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream, and visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. So, pardon me, time out for just a second. We've departed from the chronology here. This is now a flashback to the year uh, 553 B.C. It's about a decade following the story of Daniel and the lion's den, if you remember a week or two ago. And there's a twist. So, previously in the book, Daniel, uh, Nebuchadnezzar had this dream that featured four statues as four symbols for four empires, and Daniel acted as an interpreter of that dream. Now, Daniel's going to have a dream, again, about four beasts, which we'll read about in a second, symbols for four empires, and to understand his dream, Daniel has to himself enlist help. Now, stuff's about to get really weird. Remember, this is a dream, uh, which doesn't mean that it's nonsense, but it is a dream. You should, God, God should hear about my dreams sometimes. In fact, uh, one time <laughs> I remember uh, talking to my dad. We were driving somewhere, and I was telling him about what it's like to live, in, you know, out here. And um, he was like, man, it's, it's my worst nightmare to live in a big city. And I thought, that's your worst nightmare? I have dreams about, like, severed heads on spider legs, and your worst nightmare is living in a city? It seems like it could be a lot worse, me personally. Anyway, um, the city doesn't seem so bad to each his own, but things are about to get as weird as that. Daniel's dream has basically two parts to it. Let's read about the first part beginning in verse 2. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being, and the mind of human was given to it. And there before me was the second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns, as if that wasn't enough. While I was thinking about the horns, as one does when they notice a horn, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. Okay, first, back up. Daniel talks about four winds that are blowing across something he calls the Great Sea, which seems simple enough to us, but this is deeply evocative imagery. Uh, in Hebrew thinking, the sea was a symbol of chaos and a symbol, symbol of malevolence in the world. So out of the sea, the symbol of chaos, come four beasts, each of which symbolize four empires. Now notice, the beasts aren't animals in the beast sense, like they're just a lion. They're actually monsters. The, the imagery is designed to horrify the reader. It's ancient proto-H.P. Lovecraft or Stephen King type stuff. And the imagery operates on two levels. On the first level, the four beasts represent four empires from around the time of Daniel. Most scholars identify them as uh, Babylon, Medo-Persian, Greece, and Rome. So the first beast is like a lion. It's got eagle wings, which is actually stock imagery representative of Babylon itself. In fact, there are carvings in the Babylonian gates that we found, or that not we, I'm not an archaeologist, that those guys and gals have found, um, and in the palace walls of exactly such an uh, symbol or animal or beast that represents Babylon. The second beast is like a bear. It's got three ribs in its mouth. So the idea is that it's just eaten, but it's still very hungry. It's got this insatiable hungry, hunger. The, the, 
Medo-Persian Empire ate or conquered three different empires, Egypt, Libya, and Babylon, and yet it continued to rage on in violent conquest. The third beast is like a leopard, so it's fast, it's got four heads. Uh, the Greek Empire under Alexander the Great conquered most of the known world in less than a decade, which if you're actually doing the numbers is pretty fast, I'm told. And even so, Alexander somehow died with no heir, and he effectively divided his kingdom amongst four generals and into four parts. And then the last beast is the most interesting. Dr. Tim Mackey over at Western Seminary in Portland calls it the super beast. It's like animal-like. It's got huge iron teeth. It's this sort of biblical mecha Godzilla. And scholars speculate that this may be a reference to the Roman Empire, ten emperors who tore the world apart. So one dimension of the beast symbology is about four empires of the ancient world. The second dimension is... Uh, that the beasts also represent the empires of the world down through history. So from Babylon to Genghis Khan to the Ottoman Empire, Nazi German, Germany, the British Empire, Communist Russia, to the U.S. of A. And that's kind of how prophecy works. It acts as a signpost to a literal event and to a symbolic pattern of sorts. Or to put it another way, prophecy often says, this is happening, this happens, this will happen again, or this happens all the time. So Daniel's dream then is more than simply a horrifying vision about four ancient empires, but it speaks to all empires in human history. That said, let's read on. Verse 9. As I looked, there were set in place, and the ancient, uh, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, the hair of his head was like white wool, his throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words, words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. So at this point in Daniel's dream or his vision, he sees into the heavens or he sees into God's space or God's dimension. And he beholds a, a throne at which sits the king of the entire universe. And interestingly, this is the one and only place in all of Scripture in which God is depicted as an old man of sorts. Uh, but don't think of like elderly and enfeebled, think ancient and wise. And in front of God unfolds this sea of people, millions of them, and the imagery is of judgment. The dream taps into this consistent motif that runs throughout the entire scriptures. One day, all of creation will stand before the creator of God as the world is judged. Let's keep reading. Verse 12. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So... Daniel sees someone who, in Daniel's words, is like a son of man. In fact, that description could also be translated like a human one or a human-like one coming on the clouds. Now, clouds in the Hebrew Scriptures represent God's presence. So think of like the cloud at Mount Sinai or the cloud that went with Israel in the desert. In fact, we regularly read of God appearing on the clouds throughout the Scriptures. Sing praise to God. Sing praise to His name. Extol Him who rides on the clouds. Later in Psalms, it says, He makes the clouds His chariot and rides on the wings of the wind. And in Nehum, it says, Yahweh rides on a swift cloud. The clouds are the dust of His feet. 
So in Daniel's vision, this figure that he witnesses is like a human or a human-like one, but is simultaneously somehow an appearing of God himself. And ring a bell? You know, what's always the safest bet answer to a question in Sunday school? There you go. I like the cadence with which you answered as well. Jesus. Yeah, Jesus. That's him. Then Daniel's vision moves into Genesis language. This son of man, this Jesus character, was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now remember, Adam and Eve were first commissioned to rule and to reign over the universe as king and as queen. But in the wake of the fall, humanity and the world itself became warped. And this is fascinating because it reminds us that God always intended a human to rule the universe as king. And tragically, humanity proves itself unfit to accomplish such a task. Kings eventually become beasts, ruled by selfishness and corrupted by power. They trample the weak. They spew forth a plague of injustice, which sort of sounds like the name of like a bad metal band or something, plague of injustice. You can use that if you like. If you're here and you're looking to name your band, or just call it spew, spew forth. No, that's too long. Either call it spew or plague of injustice, and then be about not that in your songs. (laughs) Anyway, Daniel's vision reminds the reader that on a coming day, someone like a son of man or a human one will come on the clouds of heaven, or in other words, with God's presence, to judge and restore and rule over the world as it was originally intended. The empires, or the beasts, will be no more, and the son of man will rule and reign forever. So how much staggering implication is then packed into the words of Jesus himself when, throughout the four biographies of his life, he goes about referring to himself almost constantly as what? Son of, son of man. It was his favorite title for himself. It comes from right here in Daniel 7. In fact, this is one of the most important chapters in the entire Old Testament precisely because it so shaped Jesus' own idea of himself, his mission, and where he was headed. So let's finish reading Daniel 7, verse 15. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. Here it is. The four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth, but the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. And then Daniel goes on to think further on the fourth beast in particular and the weird horn thing. You can read it at home later if you'd like. Until finally in verse 28 he says, This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Now, before we end tonight, let's ask this question. Why is Daniel deeply troubled? You know, the dream is a creepy one from the outset, sure, but it seems to end well enough. In fact, when he gets an interpretation, it's a largely positive one. It reads like good news in context. The empires of the world, those that trample and devour the people of God, will eventually be put away for good. Uh, God will assign eternal rule to the Son of Man who will be the first to steward such rule well. And together with Jesus, everyone gets to live happily ever after. So you're thinking, what's your problem, Daniel? But the problem is that Daniel longs for such a conclusion immediately, not on some far-off future occasion. Daniel realizes that he's going to have to wait and wade through seasons of chaos and violence and war and suffering and persecution for God's people. So, 
This is a dream about what it means to live in the shadow of the empire. And this idea of empire is not only a major theme in the book of Daniel, it features heavily throughout the scriptures in their entirety, beginning in Exodus with the Pharaoh and with Egypt, on to King Solomon and Israel, um, to the Babylonian Empire, the exile, on into the Roman Empire of the New Testament. Empire features heavily throughout the Bible. But what is an empire exactly? Uh, Scholar John Dominic Crossan proposes four indicators for identifying an empire. Empire. The first marker for empire is a military. The presence of a military itself, itself obviously is unexceptional, but an empire has one of the best militaries in the world, better soldiers, better weapons, better funding, and so on. An empire trusts in, it greatly funds, and relies on its military. The second marker of an empire is the economy. An empire is an economic engine that propels the world forward. Like its military, uh, an empire trusts in its markets for safety and for security in its way of life. The third identifier is a political one. So an empire organizes the power structures that rule our society, and consequently an empire not only trusts in its leaders, systems of government, but it believes in and proclaims its particular form of government as the very best in the entire world. And finally, the empire must have an ideology. The empire offers a a narrative to the culture at large about what it means to enjoy a life well-lived. In a digital age like ours, um, technology provides this unprecedented access to ideas and ideology. Uh, Winston Churchill, about half a century ago, famously said that the empires of the future will be the empires of the mind. And what he meant was that the empires of his tomorrow would conquer and colonize by means of a military, sure, and with the seductive hypnosis of an ideology. To seize control of a large area, an empire must control and conform the people. So there's control via the coercion of behavior, where the idea is that you pay your taxes, you obey the law, or you'll be punished. That's just how the state works, for better or for worse. That's control. But then it has to do something more than that. It has to conform the people. The empire must mold you over in its image. Uh, embody its ideology. This means that within the context of any given empire, there are certain norms from which it is unacceptable to deviate. Refusal to conform will get you in all sorts of trouble, whether it's the political right or the political left, the political right. Or the political, I was doing it for your benefit. That's why I got them wrong. For instance, uh, mention Jesus' teachings on nonviolence around certain crowds and watch the rage begin to boil over. And you don't even have to add in any of your own commentary. Simply copy and paste something from, say, Matthew 5 or Romans 12 or 1 Peter 3 about nonviolence and enemy love and the way of peace, and then stand back and watch people go insane. Or wonder aloud what Jesus of Nazareth would have to say about American gun violence and and watch the cesspool that is the internet royal like sharks and bloodied water, you know, clamoring for the idols, the precious, the precious, or whatever. And then on the other side, 
apply these same teachings about, say, nonviolence to something like a hotly debated political topic like uh, abortion, and then speak your peace, that the sanctity of life applies to friends and enemies, to people of our own ethnicity and nationality, and to uh, people of other ethnicity, other nationalities, to the born and to the unborn, and your previously supportive, progressive little friends and family will turn on you in an instant. Deviate from the norm, and the clause will inevitably come out. And therein lies the problem for the disciple of Jesus, whether you're right or left-leaning, socially or political, whatever it might be, the way of Jesus always deviates from the empire's status quo. Always. In fact, the uh, Pharisees and Sadducees, the closest thing in the ancient world that we have to like conservatives and liberals, so hated one another that the only thing that could possibly unite them in collaboration was the plot to kill Jesus, <laughs> whom they hated even more. And nothing has changed, really. If you aren't somehow upsetting, I think, conservatives and liberals, you're probably not following after the way of Jesus. The stewarding of conformity is how entire nations become capable of great collective evil as a people. No one wakes up one morning and suddenly thinks to themselves that the idea to exterminate the Jewish people or to ruthlessly bomb and invade another country with seriously questionable motives is like, this is what we'll do on Thursday. It takes the slow, incremental cultural formation of the empire to get a people on your side. And suddenly, the idea of concentration camps and drone bombing seem necessary, and they seem good. We are all being formed every single day, and we'll talk a great deal about this in the fall, but for tonight's purposes, it behooves us to admit that we are deeply formed by the culture in which we live. This means that it is incredibly important to think well about this concept of empire because as disciples of Jesus, we seek to be shaped by the kingdom of God, not the empire under which we live. So to think through this, let's run the empire of America through the grid just for the sake of conversation this evening. One, military. We have the largest military in the world. Check. Two, we are driving uh, the engine driving the world economy. We got the economy thing down. Uh, three, Americans make up about 5% of the world's population, yet represent 22% of the world's wealth, and that's actually down from a staggering 40% a few decades ago. In fact, during the Cold War, uh, America's primary argument for democracy over communism was our lavish wealth. We were able to say, look, it's working. See how rich everyone is? See how, uh, in, how much we're enjoying our lives? Our emphasis on the political world is unavoidable. You know, the news obviously right now is sodden with all things political, but it's that way even when it isn't an election year. And what's more, the people of our empire place hope and faith in their political parties and candidates to an absolutely religious degree, right or left. America began as this idea that became cemented in time as an ideology. Consider, for instance, the opening paragraph of the Declaration of Independence. And, man, this thing is a mouthful, let me warn you before. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to the effect their safety and happiness. This is basically the American dream in writing, albeit a bit wordy. 
Every American has the right to chase this idea of a better life, or perhaps more accurately, you enjoy such a right if you're a white male much more than someone else. And over the years, the idea of the American dream has obviously mutated. The seeds were there from the beginning, this idea of individualism, your individual happiness, consumerism, what's in it for you, instant gratification, that life is all about liberty and the pursuit of happiness, which contributed to this drift from God, drift from this idea of self-denial, which is a core teaching of Jesus that no one likes ever, the drift from this idea of simplicity and generosity, the drift from community. Um, what is then the American dream today? If it began as one thing and sort of mutated in time to an ideology, how would we describe it today? Well, author Mark Sayers has identified seven widely held beliefs in Western culture, and hang in me, hang in there for a second. I think this is the most scathing and accurate prophetic insight into the ideology of the Western world. Number one, individual freedom is the highest good. Happiness self-definition, and self-expression. Number two, widely held belief in the Western world. Thus, traditions, religious views, received wisdom, regulations, social ties that restrict individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, and self-expression must be reshaped, reconstructed, or else destroyed. Three, the world will inevitably improve as the scope of individual freedom grows. Technology, in particular the Internet, will motor the progress to utopia. The primary social ethic is tolerance for everyone's self-defined quest for individual freedom and self-expression. Any deviation from this ethic of tolerance is dangerous and must not be tolerated. <laughs> Therefore, social justice is less about economic or class inequality and more about issues of equality relating to individual identity, self-expression, and personal autonomy. Five, humans are inherently good. Six. Large-scale structures and institutions are suspicious at best and evil at worst. And seven, forms of external authority are rejected and personal authenticity is lauded. Good grief. Uh, this guy has got our number, I think. Now, uh, author Mark Sayers points out the fact that this particular ideology is widely held, and it's widely held by disparate groups of people, meaning there's not just one type of person that believes those things. Liberals and conservatives believe these things, be they human rights activists or porn stars or free market capitalists or radical leftists, the LGBTQ community, the Tea Party fanatics. Most Westerners have some version of this ideology swimming around in their brain or just outwardly celebrated. For millions of people in America across the Western world, this ideology, so accurately described by Sayers, provides the dominant framework for navigating life in the world. Later, uh, Mark Sayers goes on to say, these beliefs have not so much been argued as assumed. They're not enforced, rather they're imbibed. We do not receive them as intellectual propaganda to be obeyed. Instead, they are communicated to us at an almost subconscious level through the high priests of advertising and the techno-prophets of Silicon Valley. This new cultural mood becomes all the more powerful as the good is reduced to mere individual happiness. We can no longer see beyond ourselves to learn from history or be concerned about the future. The result is an amnesia about everything except the immediate, the instant, the now, and the me. 
The future is not left to God, but rather a kind of implicit fuzzy faith that things will simply move to get better. Somehow, society will get better. My life will get better. This moves beyond ideology and lapses into a secular religion, and it is a ubiquitous one. Yes, uh, America, with its ideology, military, economy, and politics, meets all the requirements of the empire. It is an empire by every definition of the word. In fact, it is the global empire, the military superpower of the day. Why is that important? Because the myth of America as some sort of Christian nation blinds us to the heinous side of the empire in which we live, racial injustice or globalization or whatever it might be, what the New Testament authors call the world. And then those blinded overlook the fact that in the battle for spiritual vitality, the empire is often an enemy and rarely a friend. Uh, A year or two ago, uh, this friend of mine created this uh, social media parody thing where she would simply pose a doll in uh, like funny cliched Instagram photos and then like mock the sort of homogenized self-celebrating captions that are all over the place. And somehow this little account that she created that dwindled around around a circle of friends for a long time became followed by uh, more than a million people and publicized all over the world. And that wasn't the best part. That was hilarious enough. But the best part was the way that thousands and thousands of fans of this account flocked to it and said, oh my gosh, you're so right. Thank you for making fun of these people when these were the very characters that the account was created to satirize in the first place. And they had no idea it was about them. Of course, it's about those other people. And that's how Americans tend to treat this idea of empire in the New Testament. Man, the empire sure sucks. It's really bad for those guys. Thank God we're Americans. There's a reason that the teaching from the Bible was banned in uh, communist countries. A book like Daniel undermines trust in government, at least to a comprehensive degree. And it exposes nations for what they often are, the empire or the beast. They trample and devour and oppress the poor for their own benefit. And that's what that uh, apocalyptic writing like Daniel does. It helps us see the world as it is. As it is. In fact, that word apocalyptic means an unveiling. Um, in this case, an unveiling of the empire. Such an expose would obviously sound quite different if it were drafted by Babylonians. They would pick on someone else. Or if it were drafted by Romans, they would maybe pick on the Babylonians. Or if it were by Americans, we would pick on some other empire. And interestingly, despite all that's been mentioned already, there is a lot of bad and good in every empire. Some are worse than others, obviously. And if my previous critique of America as an empire perturbed you, I think we can still all agree that America has its fair share of problems. And even so, most of us would still find it preferable to live in this empire as opposed to, say, the empire of Nazi Germany or Stalin's Russia. In fact, America, like Babylon, is responsible for contributing a great many good things to the world. And as true citizens of the kingdom of God who are temporary pseudo-citizens of America, the role of the disciple of Jesus is to celebrate the good of the empire, absolutely, in which we live, while also drawing our attention to what is not good and being aware and wary of it. There's this tension in the book of Daniel itself. Think about it. Uh, Chapter 2 
features this bizarre dream that Nebuchadnezzar has, if you remember. In it, there's a statue made from four parts. They each represent the four kingdoms, and it's used to bring positive news about the empire, about Babylon. Then here in chapter 7, Daniel has a dream about the empire, and it's a negative one, to say the least. It's like horrifying, and there's monsters and a talking horn. It's really weird. And the book, Daniel, depicts both dreams as messages from God's Spirit, meaning it requires wisdom and discernment and the voice of the Holy Spirit to know when to celebrate and to know what to call out. And chances are, our time to do so could be somewhat limited. On a long enough timeline, the survival rate for every empire drops to zero. Historically, all empires have an expiration date. They could last for centuries, sure, but they come and they go. That's what chapter 7 of Daniel is getting at. One beast is succeeded by another and another and another and on down the list. Old Testament scholar Trimper Logan puts it this way, one of the main lessons of this chapter is that although oppressive human power seems unconquerable, particularly to the vanquished, human power is in reality temporal. One evil power succeeds another in a cycle of oppression which will be broken by only divine intervention. And this is especially noteworthy when we consider that in America, our entire political system is based on what sociologists call the myth of progress, this notion that we're all en route to some type of utopia, usually a godless one. All empires cling to this notion of utopia on the horizon, whether they're Marxist or capitalist or religious or secular, and it's all polishing the brass on the Titanic. Because there's typically a trade-off, you know, technology, for example, has evolved to the degree that transportation and communication and education, intellectual resources are now more readily available than they've ever been before, which is, I think we would, most of us would agree, is often a very good thing. On the other hand, uh, peace and justice and family, relationships, community, on these concepts, we have made little to no progress. In fact, we've often devolved rather than evolved over the course of the last few centuries. As the people of God, we see the myth of progress for what it is, the idea of us all being en route to a secular utopia as just that, a myth. Instead, empires actually typically hit some kind of zenith point before they start to spin headlong into abject decline somehow or into oblivion or, or they're just conquered by some other empire. Empires are often defined by their pride, if you think back to the imagery of the weird talking horn, or by their arrogance and the greatest nation on the earth, all that type of stuff. Historically, they fall, just like Proverbs. Rome is gone, Greece, uh, Alexander the Great, Turkey, which was the former seat of the Ottoman Empire, the Aztec Empire, nothing is static. Everything's falling apart. Of course, this doesn't, hear me on this, this does not preclude the work of the disciple of Jesus, not by a long shot, actually. If you recall, our first work discussing this idea of becoming a creative minority, the idea is to find a space in between fleeing from the host culture, which becomes separatism, which becomes legalism, don't look, don't hang out with these people, and don't make your own Christian music and Christian coffee shops and a megachurch campus that has everything built in so you don't have to mingle in with the big, bad, icky world. We also are trying to avoid syncretism when we disappear into the flow of the host culture, which leads to theological liberalism where uh, the authority of the scriptures are gone, the, the value of the community of church is gone. Instead, the idea of a creative minority is to find an uncompromising center, which is neither syncretism nor separatism. 
uh, in his lecture on the entire concept of creative minority, Chief Rabbi Jonathan Sachs said this. Bear with me. It's the longest quote I've ever put on a slide. It takes to look at it. It's already big, and this is not all of it. Hang in there. Listen to this. The West has already gone far down the road of abandoning the Judeo-Christian principles of the sanctity of life and the sacred covenant of marriage. Instead, it places its faith in a series of institutions, none of which can bear the weight of moral guidance. Science, technology, and the state, the market, evolutionary biology. Science tell us, tells us what is, not what ought to be. Technology gives us power, but cannot tell us how to use that power. The liberal democratic state, as a matter of principle, does not make moral judgments. The market gives us choices, but does not tell us which choices to make. Evolutionary biology tells us why we have certain desires, but not which desires we should seek to satisfy and which we should not. It does not explain the unique human ability to make, make second-order evaluations. The result, results lie all around us. The collapse of marriage, the fracturing of the family, the fraying of the social bond, the partisanship of politics at a time when national interest demands something larger, the loss of trust in public institutions, the buildup of debt whose burden will fall on future generations, and the failure of a shared morality to lift us out of the, mortal, moral, out of the morass of individualism, hedonism, consumerism, and relativism. We know these things, yet we seem collectively powerless to move beyond them. We have reached the stage described by Livy in his description of ancient Rome, where we can bear neither our vices nor their cure. So the question becomes, at least for us this evening, can this cultural decline be stopped, or is it as inevitable as death itself? And the answer from Daniel is actually yes, it can be stopped. And it's precisely the task of the people of God to ensure that it is. To, in the language of the scriptures, seek the peace and prosperity of the city. Through uh, what Dr. Gary Bashir calls redemptive participation. And to end, I want us to consider how uh, one Anabaptist author described our roles in the kingdom as threefold. Artists, citizens, and philosophers. And don't tune out. If you think that those terms don't apply to you personally, we're using them very generally here. You'll see that they do. First, artists. An artist takes on the task of critiquing all that's bad about society, but they also draw our attention to what's good in the world. As disciples of Jesus, this art form of appraisal happens not only in music or in a painting or a novel. It happens in the raising of children or it happens in teaching the second grade, or running a business, or working for a church, or serving coffee. This work of creativity is about drawing the culture's attention to a better future, imagining what the future could be like, what future could come to fruition right now, to see not just what is, but what could be. And secondly, our role is as citizens, something we can't get around. Even as foreigners and exiles, we do belong to a city and a nation. We tether our own peace to the peace of our neighborhood and of our city. We pray and work for the flourishing of our community, for justice and for compassion, whether through foster care or fighting against sex trafficking or just volunteering for the PTA, whatever it might be, to see the wrongs around us righted in ways that are very big and seem glamorous and amazing and noteworthy and ways that seem very small and simple and pragmatic. The city, in a nutshell, should be better for us having been here. 
And finally, our role is one of the philosopher. That word philosopher, philosopher literally means a lover of wisdom. To be a people who love wisdom means more than just intellectual understanding. It means discerning between what is beautiful and what is ugly, or what is true and what is a lie, and then to bring that understanding to the world as a business owner. Or as a clerk at a grocery store, we need philosophers in God's kingdom to reject the lies of a world driven by capitalism or consumerism or individualism and to instead chart the path toward generosity and simplicity and community. We need philosophers in the tech world to consider not only what technology is doing for us, but what it is doing to us. To pose not only the question of what do people want and how do we make it, but how to become a people who want the right kinds of things. We need philosophers in parenting, for Pete's sake, believe me, uh, as I speak as one. So many of us uh, in the millennial generation grew up in broken homes or were the children of divorce or there's an epidemic of fatherlessness, and that ripple effect on the coming generation is absolutely staggering. So we need moms and dads bringing God's wisdom to bear on their children. So as artists as citizens, as philosophers. This is what it looks like to become a creative minority. And I, to end tonight, a great example that comes to mind when I think through what it means to be those three things, at least in God's kingdom, is uh, uh, Martin Luther King Jr., who was an artist, a citizen, and a philosopher. Uh, of course, you know, Dr. King's famous I Have a Dream speech slash sermon is obviously nothing short of a a work of art. It's overflowing with uh, poetic imagery and with lyricism and music and prophetic insight into a moment in time and the gospel of the coming kingdom. And interestingly, with a speech, with a collection of words, Dr. King somehow captured the heart and the mind and the imagination of America with a vision for racial justice and the kingdom of God. And then in his famous letter uh, from a Birmingham jail, Dr. King wrote about what it means to affect the world for better, and he had this to say, Human progress never rolls on the wheels of inevitability. It comes through the tireless efforts of men willing to be co-workers with God. And without this work, time itself becomes an ally with forces of social stagnation. We must use time creatively in the knowledge that time is always ripe to do right. So notice that, at least to Dr. King's estimation, our role is an active one, not a passive one. To be a creative minority means more than simply sitting back to spectate as the empire rises and the empire falls and watch culture go with it. Being a creative minority means to join God in the participation of redeeming today, one moment at a time in ways that are very big or in ways that are seemingly very small but actually just as significant, whether by leading the civil rights movement or raising a son or a daughter to follow Jesus. So let us wake up tomorrow morning and recognize our role in seeking the peace of the city, knowing all the while that the kingdom is coming, the future to which we are en route, and the future for which we live today is on the horizon.